I'll introduce myself. Uh, Ami asked if, if I would talk on this subject. We had coffee one morning, and I had told her that I had given this talk at uh, Sacramento Insight Meditation, uh, and it didn't get recorded. And uh, she said, well, would you possibly be able to give it at uh, Diamond Light? I said, I'd be happy to. The second time I've talked to your group. Uh, A brief bit about me. I am an ordained Buddhist minister. Uh, My Pali name is Vamutipala, which means defender of freedom. I've spent 20 years bringing the Dharma into prison. And since COVID, I've been mentoring guys who have been released from prison and uh, need support and help and that kind of thing. And um, I'm also a teacher at Sacramento Insight Meditation and on a, a few Dharma boards as well. So why I'm interested in this topic, I've been interested in women's place in Buddhist history for a long time. And it started with my first Vipassana meditation class in the year 2000. I had dabbled in other uh, Buddhist practices, but I was a book Buddhist and just kind of, like I said, dabbling, not really very serious. But I went to a meditation class in the Vipassana tradition. And the teacher told us that the Buddha originally did not want to include women as monastics, which surprised me because the Buddha is this enlightened person. And why wouldn't he want women as monastics? And it took Ananda. Does everybody know who Ananda is? Do you talk about him in your tradition? Okay, well, I come from the you know, Theravadan tradition where we go way deep into the Pali canon and, and some of the original writings. And Ananda was the Buddha's cousin and his attendant. He was the guy who, if the Buddha had a backache, he'd give the talk or he'd let people in to talk to him. He'd get him whatever he needed. So he, he was attendant as well as his cousin. And... Um, Ananda, it is said, had to ask the Buddha three times to allow women to join as monastics. And the winning argument from Ananda in the Pali tradition was the third question he posed, can women become enlightened? And in the Sanskrit tradition, he further reminded the Buddha that his mother, Prajnapati nursed him and raised him, and he should keep that in mind when she made the request to join the monastic Sangha, where the Buddha had initially said no. And the Buddha said, yes, women can be enlightened. So it was always odd to me that a man who was a bodhisattva, who could read minds, who knew his and others' past lives, and yet couldn't initially be persuaded to allow women to ordain even though he said they could reach the highest level of awakening. Um, 
another point of confusion for me after, you know, reading about this and studying it uh, was the three refuges, which we all know about, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the three refuges. And he said the third refuge, the Sangha, must be a fourfold Sangha. And this is found in all traditions, monastic men and women and lay men and women. So why would he deny uh, Prajnapati's request 12 years later? Prajnapati is uh, the Buddha's mother's name. And what about his misgivings that by allowing women to ordain the Dharma itself would die out in 500 years? Again, this is in the Pali Canon. So all of this intrigued me. Why was this going on? Women were edited out of official Buddhist history. However, their voices are still heard in oral history and stories in the Mahayana, Tibetan and Sanskrit traditions, lots of cultural art from uh, various cultures, and some research, including, I think, one of the greatest uh, Buddhist researchers of contemporary life, Biko Analio believes that much of the female history was ignored as one Vipassana teacher said by a bunch of cranky monks. And I think that's probably what took place. Cranky monks had a negative attitude about women and this was prevalent at that time. However, there were Chinese pilgrims who visited India at the time and described art and stories about women and their history. And many still exist in the Sanskrit tradition, as well as oral history in Tibet, in Thailand, Sri Lanka, and Burma. And additionally, just recently, I'm talking about the past 25 years, there have been translations of commentaries and biographies and many include lives about women who surrounded the Buddha at that time. So written history, when it finally took place about 500 years after the Buddha's death, was almost exclusively compiled by male monastics. Women, frankly, were seen as a detriment to enlightenment. They were thought to be overly sexualized, and if you didn't watch out, they'd slyly trick you through all their wiles and their body parts, and they'd make you get into relationships and want sex. So they were to be avoided. They were considered impediments to enlightenment. So the story in the Pali Canon that Ananda, the Buddhist uh, attendant, requested that the Buddha allow women to ordain that is probably suspect as well. As I started reading more and more books and research on this, one researcher suggested that this was perhaps 15 years after the Buddha's own enlightenment. And Ananda at that time, his attendant, was much, much younger than the Buddha. And he wasn't even his first attendant. That came later. So he would have been a teenager. A teenager asking the Buddha, why can't women ordain? Didn't make much sense. Okay, so that's kind of the history leading up to this. So who was Prajnapati? Prajnapati was the Buddha's 
foster mother. And I'll explain that. And it's not easy to find much information on her. No one apparently has talked about her on the various Dharma websites. And believe me, I looked before I gave this talk about six months ago, I was investigating it. Uh, There's one um, Dharma website very steeped in in the Pali canon uh, called Access to Insight. There were five mentions of her and one poem. That was it. So I went to two books and research papers by Biko Analio, and I found a couple that really worked for me, and I recommend them. One of them is The Woman Who Raised the Buddha, and the other is The First Buddhist Women. They're the only books I could find. And there's also the Terigata, which is called The Songs of the First Women Monastics, and that's a wonderful book. It's so earthy so earthy. And I've read it a number of times. So anyway, Prajnapati was a sub-wife of King Suddhodana. Suddhodana was the Buddha's father. And her older, or maybe it was her younger sister, it goes both ways, Maya was Suddhodana's main wife, also Prajnapati's sister, and she was the queen, and she is the Buddha's biological mother. Suddhodana, like many men at that time who were, you know, in higher ranks of society, had many subwives and consorts and courtesans. Prajnapati was probably one of them. So when her sister Maya became pregnant and was getting close to delivering a baby, she wanted to go to her hometown to give birth, which was typical of the time. That was tradition. On the way, she went into labor in a saul forest, which is a kind of tree, a saul tree. And um, a group of women were with her and aided in her delivery. And the art and stories of the time depict Maya with a group of women uh, who helped her. And according to the ancient story, she held onto a branch of a saul tree and gave birth. And a female deva, which is like a female spirit, in the salt tree helped her with the delivery. However, 500 years later, when the written version was compiled, the female deva in the salt tree became a male deva who was watching over the women who accompanied her were eliminated completely. It was a bunch of men. And she gave birth from her side, her ribs. And I guess this was so they wouldn't talk about female parts because that would be disgusting. So uh, it became very maleized. (laughs) I don't think that's really a word, but you know what I'm saying. And um, her sister, Prajnapati, was eliminated from the scene. It isn't until you look at ancient stories, songs, art, that it's a completely different situation where Maya is there with her sister helping her, aiding her as she gives birth. Seven days after the Buddha's birth, Maya died. And uh, Suddhodana and the other leaders chose her sister, Prajapati, as Siddhartha's foster mom. She had also recently given birth, so she was nursing two little boys. 
and uh, took on the care of Siddhartha as her own. Prajapati cared and nurtured and supported Siddhartha for 30 years, yet we know almost nothing about what took place. In fact, we don't, in the Pali canon, we don't hear about her again um, until uh, Siddhartha is causing panic in the royal household because he's talking about leaving. So Prajnapati, this is where she's mentioned again, encourages the 500 women in his harem to do whatever they need to do to keep him from leaving. Sexual favors, favorite foods, games, athletics, whatever. Don't let him go. Anything to keep him home. And we all know the story. It didn't work. Siddhartha leaves home. And he is gone for 12 years. His wife, Yasodara, has not seen him or heard from him. He has a son, and it's not known whether his son was born before he left or afterwards, but he has a son. His name is Rahula. Rahula does not know his father. And King Sudadana and Prajapati were heartbroken. Legend has it that she, Prajapati, was so bereft about her son's absence that um, she went blind from crying so much. Twelve years later, he returns with a huge retinue of followers. In ancient India, 500 is always, almost always used in the Pali Canon, and it just means a lot a lot of people. So he returns with 500 followers. And as Prajapati hears about his return, her sight miraculously returns. But everybody's wondering, what's he going to be like? Is he going to be our family again? Will he be the person we love so much? What is our relationship going to be with him now? And who is he now? Uh, Essentially saying, what is the new normal? You know, as so many of us have said after uh, COVID let up a little bit. Yasodara, his wife, is furious with him. She doesn't even want to see him. How could he leave for 12 years and leave her with Rahula? In fact, she tells Rahula, go out and ask your father what your inheritance is which is a whole other story. King Suddhodana assumes that the Buddha is going to come back and take over the kingdom. And he's thrilled and the Sakya kingdom will now have its favorite son back. And that didn't happen. And only Prajnapati actually sees his transformation as an awakened being and is the only one who immediately accepts him as the new person he is. So upon his return, the Buddha gives a teaching to members of his family. Um, and these are the, called the Sakyan princes. And it's at a place called uh, Negrota Grove. And of course, women are not allowed to attend. The king and the Sakya princes forbade it. 
And according to the Sanskrit tradition, this is not in the Pali Canon, it's other uh, tradition, the women were furious. All the women who had cared for him for so long, who had been his consorts, who's been his servants, many had known him as a child and they're not allowed to hear his teachings now. They were mad. So Prajapati figures out what she's going to do, and she invites the Buddha, her son, and his monks to a dinner exclusively in the women's quarters. And all those women who had been in the queen's community for 40 years attended. Prajapati, probably at this point, was in her 60s. And still, unlike her husband and her daughter-in-law, she has completely accepted the transformation of her son. And it is here that Buddha gives Prajapati and all the female community their first teachings as a woman, as a female Sangha. (coughs) Excuse me. Now Prajapati is Maha, Prajapati. Maha in Pali means great. So Maha Prajapati understands immediately the value of his teachings. And that night she achieves stream entry, as did many other women. Do you know what stream entry is? Have you heard of that? In the original discourses, the the Buddha said there were different steps towards awakening. And the very first one is called stream entry. It's when you realize your ego is screwing you up, that you're trying to give up hatred and lust, and you are trying to live a much better life. And once you attain stream entry, you never go back. You can never go back. And it is said on that night, Prajapati, and many of the women in that attendance who listened to his talk achieved stream entry. This is the founding of the lay community of female practitioners. It's half uh, of the fourfold Sangha with Maha Prajapati as the compassionate counselor, supporter, spokesperson, and she will eventually fulfill the Buddha's vision of the fourfold Sangha, you know, with lay women and monastic women. And it's, I think it's really funny or weird that it's given hardly any mention, yet she is the founder of half of the Sangha that the Buddha said had to be established. So after that talk, the women loved hearing the Buddha. They got so much out of it. They were starting to feel freedom and they beseeched Prajapati to allow them to hear more of the Buddha's teachings. So on their behalf, she worked out this arrangement The men would hear him in the mornings at Negrota Grove, and the women would hear him in the afternoons at Negrota Grove. Making this happen wasn't easy. When the women went to Negrota Grove in the afternoon, they had to endure abuse by the younger males who belittled them and said the Dharma was perverted by their presence. You know, as I said earlier, keep in mind, uh, women were seen as lustful and immoral, and it was believed they were not capable of understanding these teachings. So 
Prajapati and some of the women met with the Buddha to express their indignation. And he said, women has as much right as men to hear the teachings. The Buddha actually admonished the Sakyan men and princes to allow the women to learn the Dharma without being disturbed. So now five years pass. King Sudana, the Buddha's father, dies. Prajapati is now a widow, now probably in her late 60s. And Prajapati and her lay female Sangha love the teachings, and many are well along the path, even past stream entry. And she begs the Buddha for ordination, monastic ordination for herself and 500 women followers. Remember, 500 just means a lot. And most of those who had known and supported each other for years. She is denied three times, according to the Polygan. And again, as I said at the beginning, Ananda steps in and the female lay Sangha is established. This was the first female revolution demanding rights. I mean, this is incredible. This was happening in India, you know, 2,700, 2,600 years ago. Because the women at that time were completely dependent on men. Their identities were based solely on who they married and how many sons they had. Being married and having 10 sons was considered the highest goal of a woman's life. You know, there were outliers, courtesans and prostitutes, and most famously was a woman named Ambapali. Um, She was told, uh, the stories say she was so gorgeous, men desired her so much, they'd give her her weight in gold to spend an evening with her. So she was fabulously wealthy. She was also a supporter of the Buddha. Buddha never said anything about how she made a living. He uh, was happy to bring his monks there and she gave them alms. So these women, for the, the majority of them, remove men from their lives and they're nothing. So going back a bit, imagine the anguish that took place when the Buddha himself left. And not just for his family, but for everybody who had been serving him, who had devoted their lives to making his life pleasant. He had been their entire world. And then there's these other women whose husbands joined the Buddha and left them when they decided to become monastics. Women were left with nothing. There was no place in the world for them. And if they were older women, like Prajapati was at that time, their lives essentially were over. They were seen as a burden on society and no longer had any worth. They could no longer bear sons. Their days of providing sexual pleasure were over. Um, They were not wanted. So the female Sangha, both lay and monastic, was a true refuge for these women. I mean, a true refuge. This was a place they could go and be safe. The Jain female Sangha, everybody know who the Jains are? 
Mahavira at the time was head of the Jains and he and Buddha were kind of contemporaries and had a little bit of a contest going to see who had the most followers. And uh, Jains were a lot more traditional, uh, specific about what could and couldn't be done. The Buddha was a, a lot more open to what could and couldn't be done in life. But anyway, um, the Jains also founded a female Sangha at the time. And so the Jain female Sangha and the Buddhist female Sangha was the first time as a large group without men, women supported each other in a spiritual setting. This was revolutionary. They probably were more likely, even more reliant on each other than the male Sangha because of the bitterness, the misogyny, and often violent acts perpetuated against them. There were so many violent acts perpetuated against them. Uh, many of the 133 precepts that male monastics follow have to do with how they treat females because females were being raped, uh, ignored. So going back a bit, when uh, Mahaprajapati and the 500 women wished to ordain, they were refused, as I said, three times. To demonstrate their eagerness to live as nuns, they, when the Buddha and his male monastics left to go to other cities, the women asked if they could follow. They were denied. So they shaved their heads, which was quite an act because long hair was a, a woman's beauty. They put on saffron robes and they walked barefoot hundreds of kilometers following the Buddha and his monastics just to show their dedication to the Buddha's teachings. They supported each other on their long journey and arrived with bloody feet. They were dirty and hungry. The men were going on alms rounds. Women couldn't do that. And at the end of this epic journey is when Ananda is said to have spoken on their behalf and said three times, please ordain them. Eventually, according to legend, they were ordained by accepting the, it's called the eight special rules for female monastics. I know something about this because I have two very dear friends who are female monastics um, in the Theravadan tradition, Aya Ananda Bodhi and Aya Santichita. These eight special rules, which are still followed today, are misogynistic. And no one is sure if they were, in fact, the original rules. I'm not going to go into all of them, but the very first rule, which you can see sets the tone for others, is a nun will always be subservient to a monk, even if she is ordained for many years and he has just joined the monastic sangha. So Aya Ananda Bodhi, who just stayed with me for a couple of days, she was traveling to Europe uh, before Thanksgiving, told me that this rule was one of the most difficult one to abide by when she was living at Amravati Monastery in England, sitting behind barely beyond teenagehood novice monks. And she was a nun for 20 years. So that was difficult. When I was, uh, I went to Burma about 10 years ago, spent a, a month there and the same attitude was still apparent we went to a, a monk's monastery. His name is Utejaniya. 
gorgeous monastery. We met with him in his office and he's got this huge office and it's decorated with drawings of him that his admirers do of him. And he puts them up on the walls and there's blinking lights and Buddhist statues and all kinds of cool stuff. We met with him for a few hours. He gave us some instruction, a teaching, and then we walked perhaps half a mile to a nunnery that was down a dirt path from uh, Utejani's mon- monastery. Six nuns lived there and they had adopted 14 orphan girls and were bringing them up in this small house with a dirt floor. Um, we left them with enough money to keep them going for a year. The, and the girls they adopted are called the little nuns. They would be raised as little nuns till they were 16. Then they could decide what they wanted to do. It was very difficult for these women because they're not allowed to go on alms rounds until the male monastics completed their rounds. Well, you know what? Most people, they're not wealthy, don't have much more to give. So they were dependent on visitors like Westerners like us. And, and they depend on each other for survival. I mean, survival. They also had to wear pink robes instead of the monastic robes. I was going to try to find photos to show you, but uh, eh, I couldn't. So there are some really important lessons these women that Prajapati pulled together, which can provide, I think, some direction in our divided world today. And the first thing, uh, you know, as I was reading this and admiring them so much is their determined, their dedication and their patience. Against all odds, they got what they knew was due them. And together they formed a, a female sangha And from that community, many ordained. They went against all of society's attitude towards women and their desire to commit themselves to the Dharma. They proved to everyone their intellectual and heart qualities. And unfortunately today, female monastics in all traditions are still dealing with misogyny by many male monastics. Again, Vico Analio, who I, I'm a great follower of his because he, he's not only just an incredible meditator, he is such a researcher. He speaks fluent Tibetan, Chinese, English, German, and Hindi. And studies to make sure that all the different traditions agree on some aspect of the Dharma to say that was the original teachings. Uh, He learned Chinese just to be able to do this. So I I love when I can go on retreats and hear him because he's just incredible. Um, So Mahaprajapati apparently led the first mass peaceful, peaceful protest by a group of women. They endured ridicule, hardship, deprivation, and they succeeded in achieving their goal. Not only did they succeed, but we know the names of many of these women and know they became arhants, just like the men. Arhant in the Pali tradition just means completely enlightened. No more, uh, no more rebirth. 
But how could they do that? In order to do that, they had to come together as one. If there was just one person in that group who sowed division on how to achieve a goal, or if there was an individual who was more interested in their own ego, their own conceit, their own concerns than the group, they wouldn't have succeeded. What a lesson, especially now when we are experiencing uh, such division in our society. You know, we can't even come together as an entire world to discuss what's happening regarding climate change. Uh, I thought, you know, once it was proven to be so detrimental to all living beings, we would come together and yet we're not. Although climate change may eventually be the catalyst that brings us together if it's not too late. Um, And a young woman seems to be the catalyst at this stage. And I keep reading about other young women and girls who are stepping forward in Africa, in India, and in Europe. Another thing that they taught us is about our own identities and their identities. You know, all of us have an identity and we work really hard at trying to maintain that identity and the attachment to that identity causes us so much pain. So much of our practice, your practice, is learning to let go of the illusion who we think we are and who we think others are. This is one of the reasons that monastics take on the homeless life. And the reason living as simply simple a lifestyle as possible causes this identification to ego to start to diffuse a bit. I'm sure you've all gone on at least a day-long retreat. If you go on longer retreats, you can feel that identity start to slip. I do a lot of solo retreats, um, usually a month long, and it is always such a relief to not have to deal with that ego, to let it go. And it goes automatically, and what arises in its place is joy, not dependent on anything, just joy. So these women had their identities ripped from them. You know, we work at it. They had them ripped away when the men in their lives left. Husbands, fathers, sons, they, all of them left to become monastics. And somehow through their own practice and the fear and anguish that came from losing their identities, they apparently saw through the illusion of society's imposed place for them and they became free. In order for this to happen, they had to have a dedicated practice. They had to see through the illusion of identity. And most importantly, they had to support each other. I can't imagine the fear and doubt that they must have endured. It took incredible bravery to go against the stream, the stream of society, and see through that illusion of identity. So these women knew suffering in life at a completely different level than the male monastics. The men who followed the Buddha, frankly, were primarily Brahmins. They were educated. 
And for them, debating competing philosophies was an important component of their lives. The men who became monks often did so because they felt the Dharma as taught by the Buddha was true, and it is. The Buddha's logic was exceptional. He apparently was very charismatic as well and won people over due to that quality as well as his brilliance. The women, due to their status in society and having little control of their lives, came to value the Dharma from a very different perspective. Along with losing their identities due to the loss of the men in their lives, they also went through some of the worst experiences in life. And you'll find these in what's called the Terragata, the songs of the ancient nuns. Their stories are often dark. Their experiences were confounding and sometimes even drove the women to madness. And there's uh, stories in here about women literally going mad because of um, their lack of having any importance in society when the men left. They knew a really deep suffering, death of children and spouses and parents, all the things that created security for women at the time were all taken away. They shared their stories to inspire others so they too could overcome this great well of sadness. So the Terigata, the songs of the ancient nuns was the first spiritual writings by women. First ones in the Buddhist tradition. And yet we barely know about them. They learned that true happiness was unconditioned happiness. They found happiness in a deeper, more profound way that goes beyond identity as spouse and mother. They found ease, support, and contentment in community uh, through their practice. They knew they were all they had. They had each other in their community, and it made each of these women stronger. They had value in a world that didn't value women, except as an appendage for men. Um, I read a lot of self-help kind of stuff, not really self-help, but just studies on happiness. I'm always interested in what makes us happy. And uh, just a, a recent one, which is fairly typical of quite a few of them, uh, was a New York Times article on this topic. It was by uh, Dr. Broadman, who did research on the practice of self-focus and self-gratification and how, you know, how do all our self-help stuff, how, how does that work? How is it helping us? And this is to quote her. In many cases, my advice runs counter to conventional wisdom, she explains in her book. The contemporary emphasis on self-focus flies in the face of research that meaningful connections and other-oriented actions are what fortify us. So do you hear that? Not focusing on ourselves, being concerned about the well-being of others is what causes the deepest happiness. Some of you know my, my story, and I, I can vouch for this. Uh, my husband was dying of a um, terminal illness, and my son was sent to prison all at the same time. And 
immediately, woe is me. What's the point of living? Everything is gone. I identify with these women. I really do, which is why this is so meaningful. And the only thing I could think of doing was going where people were as miserable as I was. So I went into prison. And that was, that saved me. I was happy. I was so happy to be with people that I could speak to and help and do something for and no longer the focus on me. And it was brilliant. I loved it. And I still love it. We can also see the truth of this during the pandemic. Loneliness, isolation drove many into the depths of depression. Meaningful connections are so important. Looking for ways to help others. Uh, to be in community is absolutely necessary for our well-being. It's why the Buddha put as the third refuge the Sangha. So back to uh, Mahaprajapati, the importance of a supportive community, the Sangha in her time was crucial. They made decisions as a community, not as individuals. And while some women might not have agreed with everything they did, once the decision was made, they supported it. And while they admired and looked up to Mahaprajapati, she is often referred to in the Pali and Sanskrit writings as their spokesperson, not their leader. Decisions were made by the community, which would be the most beneficial to all the, mem- to all the members of the community. And she would be the person that would go to the Buddha, her son, and make a request. They truly took refuge in the Sangha. So the Buddha obviously knew the importance of community. That's why he put so much emphasis on the fourfold Sangha. You know, we practice liberation as individuals, but almost always within the context of a supportive community. Just consider people who try to meditate on their own. Has anybody tried that? Said, I'm going to start a meditation practice and tried it on your own. I don't know too many people have been successful at it. Need a teacher, you need others, you need to sit with others, you need to ask questions. You need a supportive community. So Mahaprajapati is going to die. After founding the female monastic Sangha, once again, (laughs) Mahaprajapati mostly disappears from the Pali Canon. Nothing is heard from her again. She appears for the last time as her death nears. It is said that she lived till she was 120 years old. (laughs) That's a good long life. And um, at the time, our hunts, awakened ones would write or orally transfer what is called an apadama. It's their story. It's kind of like their biography. It's a reflection on life. And when she does her apadama, she includes the 500 women who ordained with her and were her community. So her story is a collective story of herself and the other women in her sangha. In versions other than the Pali Canon, she announces to her son that she is ready to die and she wants wants to achieve Nibbana, Nirvana. 
And because she is also very human and a mother, she does not want to outlive her son. And she has seen that he will also be dying soon. When she announces uh, she will be dying, the 500 nuns announce they wish to die with her and the Buddha gives them all permission. At the NES, Mahaprajapati to perform miracles in front of the Sangha so they can see she is indeed awakened. And it is time for her Pari Nibbana. Pari Nibbana means very last death. It is said he asked this because he wanted to erase all doubt that a woman can indeed be completely enlightened. Then the remaining 500 nuns also performed miracles in front of the monks to prove that women indeed could be enlightened. Then they settled into deep meditation and they died. In the Pali tradition, they never know samsara again. In the Tibetan tradition, they are said to be coming back again and again as bodhisattvas. So I wanted to read According to the Pali Canon, the uh, kind of eulogy the Buddha gave at his mother's death was it is really, really beautiful. Okay. Even the trunk of a huge timber tree, however massive it might be, will break to bits eventually. Thus, Gotami, that was also one of her names, who was a nun, is now gone out completely. It is so marvelous a thing. My mother, who has reached Nibbana, leaving only bits of bone, had neither grief nor tears. She crossed this ocean of existence, grieving not for others left. She now is cool. She's well gone out. Her torment is now gone. And then he says, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but at the end, and I was struck by this, therefore be lamps unto yourselves. Go graze in mindfulness with wisdom, seven parts attained. You all should end your woe. When he says be lamps for yourself in the Pali tradition, that's also the last words he used for himself uh, as he died. Be a lamp unto yourself. And perhaps he used those words, as uh, it is said here in the Pali Canon, for his mother as well. So that is it. That's the story of Mahaprajapati. And I, if anybody's interested, I want to recommend a couple of books. The Woman Who Raised the Buddha. You know what? I've got a blurred screen, so you're not going to see it. So The Woman Who Raised the Buddha by Wendy Garland, and uh, she is a Tibetan practitioner, used a lot of um, archival stuff, uh, art, stories uh, from the Tibetan tradition. And then The First Buddhist Woman by Susan Murcott, also a great book on the very first women who are noted in the Pali Ganon, and then the poems of the early Buddhist nuns, another great one if you're interested in this topic. And those are the only books I could find on it. All right, well, I will 
read a final dedication of merit. It's uh, I was inspired by Shanti Deva and uh, put in some of my own language, and I've been using this, so I will use it here as well. And it's a dedication of merit inspired by Shanti Deva. Through the effort of our practice, we dedicate our time tonight to all living beings and hope they do not suffer. We dedicate our practice to the well-being of the earth herself. She too is suffering due to our greed and ignorance. May no one be afraid or belittled or weighed down by a mind of depression. May those whose bodies are worn with toil be restored. May those who are homeless secure homes. May the thirsty find water and may the poor find prosperity. May those who are weak with sorrow find joy and may the forlorn find hope. May the powerless find power. May there be timely rains and enough food for all sentient beings. Whatever diseases there are in the world, may we come together to defeat them. For as long as sentient beings remain on our mother earth, may we too remain to dispel the misery of the world. By virtue of our merit, may all beings everywhere plagued with sufferings of body and mind obtain an ocean of happiness and joy and no complete freedom. And may the earth herself benefit from our practice. So thank you all for your kind attention and your comments. I appreciate it. And uh, I wish you all well. Maitri Karunam Muditam Upeksham Maitri Karunam Muditam Upeksham